We welcome everybody to the New Springville Jewish Center here in Staten Island, as well as everybody listening and watching on the Nachum Siegel Network. We will begin with explaining of the Kinnis with Rabbi Elio Sonnenschein, Rosh Hashiva Yeshiva Gedoyla, or Chodosh Seagate, New York. Begin on page 152 in the Art Scroll Kinos with Kinovov, which begins Shavas Surumeni Shimuni Oivrai. Shavas, when everything came to a standstill. And we're told that what came to a standstill was our joy, our Simcha Sheldvar Mitzvah, the joy, the passion. The Simcha that we felt when we were doing mitzvahs came to a standstill. And that's what made room, that's what opened up the doors for the Goyim, for the enemies to come in and begin this terrible destruction, to begin destroying the Beis Hamikdash and destroying Yerushalayim. And while we understand that having joy in doing a mitzvah is a fundamental idea, and while we understand the importance and how crucial it is to not only go through the act but feel the passion while we're doing it, its placement over here as a hakdama as the first thing, the first word that we mention in the kinos by day, its place in its opening the doors for the destruction is somewhat puzzling. We know that the destruction happened in the first base Hamikdash, in the second base Hamikdash, because of the Gimel Averis Chamurais, Gili Arayis, Shvi Chasdamim, We know that there was an issue of Sinas Chinam, baseless hatred from one Jew to another. And we understand those as far more prominent in our list of sins, in our, in our list of wrongs, than the idea of not having the passion and joy in doing a mitzvah. Again, as important as it is, where does it find its place in the opening words of the kinnus, in the opening words of the kinnus of the day, and in opening the doors to the goyim? I want to give some thought to the second pasuk, that we learned last night in Eicha, and that many of us read again today. The Pasuk tells us, Bachay Sivke Balayla. Bachay Sivke Balayla, Vidim Osa Alecheyo, Einlo Menachem Mikole Aveo. She weeps bitterly. We're talking about the destruction, we're talking about Yerushalayim. She, we she weeps bitterly in the night, and her tears stand on her cheek. She has no comforter from all her lovers. We describe crying, Bachay Sivke, the weeping of Bachay Sivke Balayla. It's a crying that happens at night. It's a crying that happens during the nighttime, Balayla. And why is it that we describe crying to be specifically designated for the nighttime? Certainly, it's based on the fact that the first crying the crying of the spies of the Maraglim in the Midbar when they said Lashon Hara on Eretz Yisrael, which put into place the domino effect of crying through the years on that night was the night of Tishabov. 
So the initial crying was the crying Leil Tishabov, Bochay Sivka Balayla of the ninth of Av. But certainly there's more to that. As Rashi tells us on Eicha, Bochay Sivka Balayla, that a cry at night is heard. One who hears the cry at night begins to cry himself. And again, we need to ask why is it that the cry of the night resonates stronger than the cry of the day? What is it about the cry of the night, the Bochay Sivka Balayla, that we're coming to underline here? We are, as Jews, mekabel ol malchus shamayim, twice daily. We accept on ourselves the yoke of Torah and mitzvahs, of the Rabbeinu Shalolam, of the malchus of Hashem, b'shoch b'cha uv'kumecha. We say, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Aleikeinu, Hashem Echad, the most famous and the most powerful words a Yid could say, twice daily, b'shoch b'cha, at a time when people go to sleep, uv'kumecha, and at a time when people wake up in the morning. And we understand that a person needs to be mekabel on himself, he can't just go about doing Torah and mitzvahs, but he needs to accept on himself that yoke. And we understand that when a person goes out, he wakes up in the morning, and he goes to Davin, and he goes to work, and he deals with his family, with his mishpacha, with his children, with his spouse. He deals with his friends at work, he deals with his friends in shul, he deals with his rav and with his talmidim. When a person goes out to do all of his daily activities, when a person goes and spends his day the way he normally spends his day, in his productive way, a person needs to be mekabel el malchus shamayim on every step he takes. He needs to make sure that he walks in the way that Hashem wants. He needs to make sure that he talks in the way that Hashem dictates. He needs to make sure that he thinks and that he, and that he deals with other people in a way that resonates with the Torah. And he needs to be mekabel el malchus shamayim bekumecha when he wakes up in the morning to make sure that every single thing he does throughout that day is in line with the Malchus Shamayim is in line with the Rabbeinu Shalom's Ratzin. But why, asks Reb Tzadik, why must a person be Mekabal El Malchus Shamayim when he goes to sleep at night? B'shoch When he goes to sleep, he needs to be Mekabal El Malchus Shamayim. When he gets into bed at night, when he retires from his daily activities, and he's no longer being productive, why is that a time for him to be Mekabal El Malchus Shamayim? Why is that a time for the Yid to accept on himself the yoke of the kingship of Hashem? What does he intend to do now under that guidance, under that umbrella of Malchus Shamayim? Our Avedis Hashem, our serv service to Hashem is split into two realms. Yes, there is what we do and what we don't do. An entire Shulchan Aruch, which dictates every step we take, every word we utter, from the moment we open our eyes to the moment we close them at night. And there is nothing that we do or that we say or that we eat or that we drink. There is no place that we go to and there is no step that we take that's not dictated by a Sif in Shulchan Aruch that tells us when, where, how many and why. And that's called the realm of activity, of action, the Olam HaAsiyah, a world in where what we do is measured by the mitzvahs say, by the positive commandments that we watch, by the mitzvahs loisaseh, by making sure to steer clear of not doing the wrong thing. And what we do is our measuring yard in the world of activity. The mitzvahs, the Torah, is, is the measuring stick of where we are in the world of activity, but there is another realm, a deeper realm, a more fundamental realm. 
And that's not, not just what we do for Hashem, but who we are to Hashem. All of the actions that we've done all day, all of the Torah that we've learned all day, all of the mitzvahs that we've involved ourselves in all day, sometimes with great mysterious nefesh, sometimes with great dedication, sometimes sacrificing things that are most precious to us. The actions that we take during the day, the mitzvahs that we do during the day, the Torah that we learn, the buck doesn't stop there. When we're done doing those mitzvahs, when we're done learning that Torah and t the time comes to retire for the day, to call it a day, to go to sleep, b'shach what impact has that Torah and mitzvahs had on us? How has it changed us as a person? It's not just about what we do, but it's about who we are. And that's the Kabbalah's El Malchus Shamayim of Bishach Becha. when we wake up in the morning with Makabal El Malchus Shamayim, on the Torah that we learn and on the actions that we take. But Bishach when we go to sleep at night with Makabal El Malchus Shamayim, we accept on ourselves to be totally subservient to Hashem, not just in what we do, but in who we are, in what our existence is, in our atzmius, in our identity. HaKadosh Baruch Hu split the world into two. There's a time of night and there's a time of day. The time of day, it's light outside, it's bright, it's happy, it's hopeful, and it's a time for us to go and be productive and accomplishing and be involved in Torah and mitzvahs. But then the Rabbi Shalom created another time and it's called night and that's when it's dark. And darkness is not just the absence of light. Toshes choshech v'yehi layla, as we say in the Baruch Nafshi. We say every day that the Rabbi Nishalaylam is b'yrei yoyim v'layla. The night is also a creation. It's not just the absence of day. And the night is a time for something that we can't do during the day. As we said, the day is a time to be productive, to work, to do things. And at night, the darkness chases us back to ourselves. It chases us back to face our own identity. It chases us back to a place where we can no longer do. We have to now begin to think. We can no longer be active and productive. We now have to reflect. We have to start thinking about and thinking deeply about not just what we've done, but about what we've become. Let's imagine a person who goes through very difficult times. Let's imagine the pain of a young widow or widower, someone who loses a young wife or a young husband, and the difficulties that they face throughout the day is exceptional. The mysterious nefesh of trying to be a father and a mother to children. The mysterious nefesh of holding down two or three jobs to try to support an entire family single-handedly. To try to be there for the children in the morning and when they come home from yeshiva. To try to care for them and care for that they should be well-fed and they should be clothed and that they, that they should have their emotional needs and it's draining. It's difficult. It's challenging. It's hard. It's rough. But the daytime is not a time of depression. It's a time of difficulty. The most difficult time for such a person is not when they're running from the bus stop to the supermarket or from the clothing store back home. It's not when they're doing the laundry and it's not when they're washing the dishes. The most difficult time is when the youngest child has fallen asleep. And now they're alone. 
and their bachay sivke balayla. There's nothing left to do. They retired for the day. It's the time of b'shach b'cha, not b'kumecha. It's the time where they need to start reflecting and they need to start thinking deeply about their matzav, about their situation, when there is no action to take. When a person going through difficult times runs from one place to the next during the day, in a sense, it's a hesach hadas. It's a distraction. It's necessary, it's important, and it's difficult, but it's a distraction. It's a distraction from the sadness of their situation. And when there's the toshas choshech v'yehi layla, when the young widow at night puts her final child to sleep and goes back to the living room and it's an empty house, the tears that flow on her cheek are the tears of her metzias. It's not the tears of difficulty, but it's the tears of a situation in life. It's the bochei sivke balayla. We know that when there's Avelos, when somebody loses a loved one, there's a time before Avelos called Aninos. The Aninos is the time until the Nifter is buried. From the time that the person is Nifter until the person is buried is the time of Aninos. Avelos doesn't begin until, until the, the burial is complete. And the reason why is because Aninos is not a time of reflection. Aninos is a time of action. He needs to make preparations for the, for the funeral. He needs to bury the dead. He needs to prepare a eulogy. He has what to be busy with. He's still being metapil with. He's still involved with this person. Up until now, he was involved with this person because they were ill in the hospital, and now he's involved with the person trying to bury the person. But there's still action to take. It's still bikumecha. And then when the final shovelful of dirt is placed on top of the grave, and there's nothing left to do. That's when there's a bachay siv kebalayla. That's when they tear their clothing and they sit down in Avelos. There's nothing left to do, just to reflect and to mourn their situation. <coughs> in a generation that we live in, that all of the external issues, all of the external challenges, or at least for the most part of being a Jew are gone, we don't have to worry, for the most part, about showing up to work Monday morning and being told to take our things home because we didn't show up on Shabbos. We don't have to worry about wearing a yarmulke in the street. We don't have to worry about our children going to Cheder in the morning and having Polish thugs throw rocks at them. We don't have to worry about where we're going to get our lulav and estric from and how we're going to bake our matzais. We don't have to be afraid to light a menorah in our window. The external challenges of being a Jew in this generation are gone like in no generation past. We have children showing up, 11 and 12 year old children show up to shul in our generation. Sukkot morning, holding a lulav and esrig that the G'dayli Hadar of 150 years ago never saw. The Hidr mitzvah, the beauty in the mitzvahs, the diktakam mitzvahs, the advancement in our perfection in mitzvahs is unprecedented. Our mikvahs have chumras and stringencies that the paiskim of previous generations could only fantasize about but in a generation that all the external issues are gone, that we're mitzayin, that we've perfected the bekumecha, the internal blemishes begin to show. The b'shachbacha, the b'chay sivke balayla. But where are we? What have we become? It's not just about what we do, but it's about who we are. There are two aspects. There are two aspects of the pain of loneliness. 
There are two aspects of the, play, of the pain, of the tears, of being alone, of being yoshev badad. There's one which is the pain of being alone itself, which speaks for itself. When a person's alone, he's vulnerable. He doesn't have who to lean on. It's emotionally frightening, petrifying. It's like a nightmare to be alone. But there's another pain. And that pain is Ein Menachim Lo Mikol When a person cries, when a child goes to his mother to cry, and the tears are streaming down his cheek, the tears say two things. The tears say, one, I'm in pain. But the tears are also a plea to be wiped off of his cheek. The tears are a plea that a loved one should place their hand on his cheek to be able to say, you're worth it. I care about you enough to wipe the tears off your face. You're meaningful enough for me to wipe the tears off your face because I care for you. I love you. There's a menachem lo mikoloyavir. There's someone there to comfort you because they love you. When someone is alone, it's painful. But perhaps the greater pain, the more intense pain, is the ein menachem lo, the dimasa alechia. The tears are still on the cheek. The tears haven't been wiped off. There's no one to relate to me. There's no one to be there for me. I'm afraid and I'm in pain because I'm alone, but I'm even in more pain because there's no one to wipe my tears. The cry is a plea to wipe tears. When we think about the Beis Hamigdash that we lost, we think most prominently about the Karbanais, about the sacrifices that were brought every day in the Beis Hamigdash by the Kaihanim. But there's something that we lost in the Beis Hamigdash greater than the Karbanais that we lost. To the farmer, all the way at the edge of Eretz Yisrael that didn't go to Yerushalayim normally, he didn't see the Beis Hamigdash on a daily basis. He sat and toiled on his farm all year round to try to make Parnassah. There were three times a year that he went to the Beis Hamigdash to be Euler Regal. He went, Lirois Ulehisrois, as Chazal tell us, to see and to be seen. To see the Shechina, Kviyachal, and to be seen by the Shechina. To be related to to be cared for, to be a somebody. And when there is no Beis HaMikdash, when there is no Ali Regel, it's not just about the fact that he can't go. It's not just about the fact that he can't be there. It's about the fact that there's no one relating to him. There is no one wiping the tears off his cheek. Dim'osa Alechia, the tears stand on the cheek because Ein Menachim lo There is no one to comfort her. The Simcha of a mitzvah was gone. The mitzvahs we did we did them with stringency. We did them with perfection. We did them with hitzstainos. We did them with all kinds of chumrois. We did them with all the important shiurim. We did them tremendously. Kichot we were medaktek to the very hair's breadth of halacha. Every sifkotten and shulchan aruch we kept. There was nothing that eluded us. We kept every single mitzvah in the Torah. But we did it without joy. That means we did things externally. But internally we were empty. There was a void inside. We were an empty shell. As the Nefesh HaChayim says, the Goyim could never have destroyed a full Beis HaMikdash. Kimchot chinot chinas. They ground up an already ground up Beis HaMikdash. They came to an empty shell and they crushed it. There was nothing inside. There was nothing internal. The Goyim can't walk into our Beis HaMikdash. They can't penetrate the Kaidash Kodshim. They can't touch our Holy of Holies. They have no shaykhs to that. They have no power to do that. But when there's nothing inside, when it's empty, 
when there's no joy, there's no passion, and we go through things in an external way, then we open up the doors for the Goyim to walk in and tear down walls that are holding nothing. That's the Simcha Shel Dvar Mitzvah. The Simcha Shel Dvar Mitzvah that's gone. The Shaloi Berchu B'Tayr Tchila. Let's appreciate this so that we can rejoice once more. Page Zokainu Vachor Vasula Kavalanu, Ram Habetna Amachakulanu, Zaharadino, Imaho Yolanu. We're going to turn to page 182 to Kino Yud Aleph, by Yakoinin Yermiyoel Yeshiyahu. This is a kina that describes, it's a kina, perhaps the most authentic kina that we say on Tishabav. It's an expression of Yermio's pain over the murder of Yeshio HaMelech. There's a, a bit of a backstory that we're not going to go through all the details, but just to give the highlights. Yeshio had a grandfather named Manasha. Manasha was 
a king. He was a, a terribly evil king who stripped Klal Yisrael of everything sacred by trying as hard as he can on a mission to make sure that Avodah that idol worship was found in every single home in Eretz Yisrael. And he did some job. He was, uh, he was pretty successful at this. Klal Yisrael was steeped in Avodah in, in an incredible way. And there was no, no home that didn't have Avodah in it. And the people were totally attached and clung and davuk and shakua and enveloped in the service of Avodah And although Menashe did do tshuva at the end, it was too late for him to try to undo what, he, what has been done and uh, the Avodah remained in Eretz Yisrael in the homes of the Jews. After Menashe died, his son took over, and his son was also a Russia, and his son reigned for two years until he was killed by his own palace guards. And then the grandson Yoshio took over. And Yoshio was a tremendous tzaddik. And if you read in the details, the Austral Kinnos goes through the story about how Yoshio chanced upon a Sefer Torah, which apparently they didn't have access to Sefer Torah. He chanced upon a Sefer Torah. Someone found the Sefer Torah in the Beis Hamikdash, and he began reading the Sefer Torah. And he read in there the famous words, "Oror Asher Lo Yokum Es Hazois." Cursed is he who doesn't uphold, who doesn't fulfill the words of the Torah. And shaken to the core, he called a meeting with the leaders of Klal Yisrael, and they began to try to clean shop, to try to clean out the ills and the evils that his grandfather Menashe had placed in Am Yisrael and throughout Eretz Yisrael. And they did a wonderful job going from home to home and from place to place and ridding it of Avedizaras. They came in mamish like exterminators trying to get rid of Avedizara. And for the most part they were successful. And we know the Pasuk tells us that there was no Melech, there was no king in Klai Yisrael like Yeshio that returned all of Klal Yisrael to Tshuva. Yeshio was the greatest Baal Tshuva in our history, and he created the greatest Tshuva movement in our history of cleaning Eretz Yisrael of Avayt There was a small resistance group who did not want to give up their Avayt but because they knew that they were going to be, they were going to be checked and they, they were going to be uh, people coming in to make sure that there was no Avedi they developed a clever ploy to be able to keep their Avedi unnoticed. And what they did was they put their Avedi on the back of a door. And the door was split into two, so that when the door opened, it opened up against the wall and the Avedi was invisible. But then when the people who came to check left, the door closed and the Avedi was found whole on the back of the door and they would be Avedi Avedi and that's what the Kino tells us. Dovak boychet leitzani hadar. They're called the leitzani hadar. The sin of that generation's scorners clung to him. Asher kamu achar hadelas lister. Those who stood idols behind the door. And because Yeshio believed that all of Klal Yisrael returned, and he was unaware of these leitzani hadar that held on to it, he believed that Eretz Yisrael and the Klal Yisrael was in a certain place that the Torah tells us that when Klai Yisrael adheres 100% and totally to the will of Hashem, 
a sword will never pass through Eretz Yisrael. And that means not just that a sword won't pass through Eretz Yisrael, that Klal Yisrael won't go to war, but it means also that a foreign nation won't pass through peacefully to go to war against another nation. And that's exactly what came up, is that the Melech Mitzrayim reached out to Yeshio HaMelech and said that he intends to go to war with another nation. And instead of going around Eretz Yisrael, it would be much more convenient to be able to walk his troops through Eretz Yisrael. He doesn't want to fight with Eretz Yisrael. He wants to fight with another country, but it would be awfully convenient to walk through Eretz Yisrael. And Yeshio said no. We have a haftacha, we have a guarantee that when Klai Yisrael is listening 100% to Hashem, no sword shall pass through the land of Eretz Yisrael. And Yermio reached out to Yeshio, Yermio Hanovi, the prophet Yermio reached out to Yeshio and said, Klai Yisrael is not as clean as you think. We made great progress, and Klai Yisrael is in a, is in a much better place that they, than they've been for years and years. But there's still a resistance. And Yeshio, not wanting to believe it, <coughs> did not listen to Yermio. And he said, no, Klal Yisrael is clean. No sword shall pass through Eretz Yisrael. And he reached out to Chulda Hanavia, another prophet, a prophetess. And she too repeated the words of Yermio that it's not exactly how you think, Yoshio. It's not exactly how you think. And again, Yoshio refused to listen. And Mitzrayim and Eretz Yisrael ended up going to war with each other. And it was in that war that Yeshio was killed with 300 arrows, as the Kinnah tells us. The Kinnah tells us that he was shot 300 times with arrows. And when he was shot and breathing his final breaths, they saw Yeshio begin to mutter something to himself. And Yermio, thinking that perhaps Yeshio was complaining to Hashem, or was Chasfashalom cursing Hashem for not keeping his promise, of no sword passing through Eretz Yisrael when everyone is listening to Hashem. He listened down to hear what Yeshio was saying, and Yeshio said the famous words, Tzadik Hashem, Tzadik Hashem ki morisi pihu. Hashem is righteous, for I did not listen to his words. I didn't listen to the words of the Navi. And Yeshio, with his final breath, spoke out once again the unbelievable Kiddush Hashem that he created in Eretz Yisrael throughout his reign. But again, we need to understand, as sad as this murder is, there are other tzaddikim and gedolim that have died through our history. Why is it that the death of Yeshio is spoken about specifically in the Kinnah? And why is it spoken about specifically in regard to the Chorban Beis Hamikdash when he died before there was a Chorban Beis Hamikdash? Yeshio died before the Beis Hamikdash was destroyed. Why is it that Yeshio's death is spoken about so prominently, so prominently that Rashi tells us that there's a part of the Eicha that is said on Yeshio? What's Yeshio's tie to the Chorban Habayis and why is it so important to the day of Tisha B'Av? The Rambam, when he describes Tisha B'Av, describes the five things that happened on Tisha B'Av based on the Mishnah, Five things happened on the day of Yisrael. The people in the Midbar, there was a decree on them that they wouldn't enter the land of Eretz Yisrael. And the first base Amigdash and the second base Amigdash were both destroyed on Tisha B'Av. And we know that many gzeros, many decrees throughout our generations were signed. Many hands were shook over the destruction of Klai Yisrael for generations and generations on the day of Tisha B'Av. 
And famously, the city of Betar was conquered and destroyed and murdered. And again, he quotes the Mishnah when he describes Betar, and I'm going to skip one line and I'll get back to it in one moment. And the Goyim came and killed all of Betar and murdered them in a mass massacre. And it was a Tzorah Gedoyla, it was a great sorrow, it was a great tragedy like the tragedy of the Beis HaMikdash. And this is all based on the Mishnah that the Rambam is talking. But there's one line that he adds that the Mishnah does not talk about. And he says that in Betar, There was a Melech Gadol in Betar. There was a great king, Vidimu Kol Yisrael, and all of Klal Yisrael, Ugedoyle HaChachamim, and the Gedoylem, the leaders of, of Klal Yisrael, all thought, they all imagined to themselves, Shahu HaMelech HaMashiach, that he is the Mashiach, that he will bring the Geula. L'chaira, one has to ask, why is this, why is this dream? that there was a Melech HaMashiach in Betar that didn't end up being the Melech HaMashiach. That there was a Messiah, that there was a Redeemer in Betar that didn't end up panning out. What does that have to do with the Chorben Beis HaMikdash? What does that have to do with the tragedy of Betar being, being murdered? A city was destroyed. During the city's destruction, it was revealed that he who they thought was the Mashiach was not the Mashiach. But why does that deserve prominence when we describe what happened on Tisha B'av, what does this have a shaykhist to, and what is this, how does this relate to the Chorban Habayas? The Pasuk in Mishlei tells us, Teicheles Mimushacha Machaleleif. Teicheles Mimushacha. A drawn out hope, a drawn out fantasy, a drawn out dream, a drawn out tikva hope. Machaleleif causes sickness, causes illness to the heart. And this is based on a pasuk in the Teichacha, in Parshas Bechukhoisai, where we say, V'efkadati aleichem beholo es ha-shachefes ve-es mechalois einayim umedivois nofesh. It causes eyes to long, mechalois einayim umedivois nofesh, and souls to suffer. And Rashi describes to us that the mechalois einayim, the longing eyes, is the specific pain of eyes that long for a redemption, eyes that long for a way out, eyes that dream, eyes that hope, eyes that long, and then the dreams are shattered. The hopes are dashed. Their dreams are unfulfilled. When dreams are unfulfilled, it's not just a matter of a letdown, that I thought I would have something and I don't. When a person suffers pain and then looks forward to being able to get out of that specific pain, and then that hope to get out of the pain is shattered. It's not just the sadness of the letdown, but all of the pain that he experienced since the beginning of his story all comes rushing back in an almost sadistic display of pain. A person has trouble with parnasa earning a living. He has to face hungry children every night. He has to face a wife who's crying, who doesn't know where they're getting the money to pay the electric bill. And he goes through weeks and months and sometimes years of agony of trying to rub together two pennies. And the pain is enormous. The tsar, the agony, 
he doesn't sleep through a night and someone mentions to him that someone may have a job for you. Someone may have a job that will able, be able to give you minuch sanefesh, will be able to give you peace of mind, it will be able to calm your fears, will put you into a different place. It will be over. The pain will end. You'll get yourself a monthly paycheck. Nobody will have to worry anymore. Nobody will have to cry anymore. You won't have to look at the tremendous eyes of your children looking up to ask you for a meal. And he goes for the interview, and the person tells him on the way out that he's his best candidate. He needs to check things through and he'll get back to him on Monday. And Monday morning he gets the phone call that it just can't happen, I'm sorry. The job is not yours. The pain that he feels is not the letdown of losing a job. The pain that he feels is the pain of years and years of suffering rushing back in and shattering him again. The tears that stream down his cheeks are the tears of years and years of frustration, not one day of letdown, not the loss of a job. When a person sits with a relative, with a close friend who's sick in the hospital for weeks and months and years, and the person deteriorates, and treatment after treatment, the person deteriorates, and nothing's working, and nothing's taking, and then all of a sudden they say that maybe they found something. They're going to try a treatment. They're going to try a new treatment that if anything can save the person, this can save the person. And they invest hundreds of thousands of dollars into this treatment, and they daven, and they pray, and they stay awake at night with their eyes open, dreaming, and thinking and fantasizing about this person coming back to his health and coming back to his strength to lead the family again, about a child recovering and being able to go to yeshiva again. And then the doctor calls and says the treatment hasn't worked. The tests are all coming up the same. The illness is prevailing. And the person continues to deteriorate. The pain of that shattered dream is not the pain of a letdown. It's the pain of the years of pain. All of the tears come flowing together in one massive, unbearable punch. It's not a mere disappointment. And through our generations, throughout the history of Kla Yisrael, we face time and again shattered dreams. Perhaps one of the greatest shattered dreams was the story of Shabzai Tzvi. The story of Shabzai Tzvi, we need to put into context. It's easy for us to sit here and say they fell for a false messiah. We need to put into context that there was a Jewish nation that was afraid to walk outside during the day. At night for sure, but during the day they would be, they would be taunted and they would be killed. They couldn't get jobs. They couldn't eat. Murder was a regular occurrence. Children being taken away throughout the generations into the Tsar's army, which was later, throughout pogroms and throughout crusades, throughout the terrible torture that the Goyim placed on us. And then there was a hope. There was a person that arose, a dynamic person. The Goyim were bowing to him, and he said, it's over. I'm taking you out. It's going to end. You're finally going to be able to fulfill your dreams. People sold their businesses to move to Eretz Yisrael because it was over. Whole families began to migrate to Eretz Yisrael, to make those moves, to follow around this Shabzai Tzvi, because this is the answer to the pain. They won't have to daven Shemayna Esrei's with broken hearts anymore over the most horrific, unspeakable tragedies. And then that hope was shattered. And it took years and decades for our nation to recover. Where is the Midah Keneged Midah? Where is the measure for measure where we have this terrible punishment 
of the mechalais einayim, of the longing eyes that are unfulfilled. What have we done to cause that throughout the generation we cry over shattered dreams? The Miraglim, the spies, went to scout out Eretz Yisrael. And they spoke Lashon Hara on Eretz Yisrael. They were hikdimu pelayin. They spoke before they saw. And they said, take us back to Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim was good. Don't bring us to Eretz Yisrael. Eretz Yisrael will be bad for us. We'll be crushed in Eretz Yisrael. We'll be murdered by Eretz Yisrael. It's an Eretz Eichelas Yoshveha. The spies created a false sense of reality. They created a reality that was non-existent. They created a reality in which Mitzrayim was good and Eretz Yisrael was bad. They created a topsy-turvy reality, a Mitzias that wasn't based on anything real. And they hoped for it. And they prayed for it. And they cried for it. And because they cried for a hope that was based on falsehood, for generations we cry over false hopes and shattered dreams. There's a story that I once heard Rav Aaron Lapiansky, the Rosh Hashiva in Greater Washington, said over a story about his father in the Kovna Ghetto. His father was a member of the food brigade. They would go out together and they would get food from the bakery or from whatever store it was and they would bring it back inside the walls of the ghetto. Each day they would go out to get the food and they would bring it back. And there were soldiers that would go with these Jews that were designated to be part of this mission and they would march them out and they would do whatever work needed to be done and they would bring it back in. And one day Rav Lapiansky's father is standing there in line ready to go on his mission and he sees standing next to him is a person who wasn't normally part of the brigade and that meant that he snuck in. And he was Professor Shapiro. He was the son of the Heilige Dvar of Rome. He was a professor in a university there in Europe. He was a brilliant, brilliant man and he had snuck in to be part of the food brigade. This Professor Shapiro had a son he had a son who he entrusted with a woman, a non-Jewish woman, who he had met at the university. It was a woman that asked him for his help in the university, and he had gone out of his way to really help this woman and put her on her feet to be able to be productive in whatever capacity it was in the university. And he really went out of his way to be friendly and to, to do for her whatever he can do. And he made contact with her that he wants to switch the child so that the child could be in safety. And he sent her a message that she should meet him by the bakery, outside of the Kovna Ghetto. And she said that she'll be there at a certain time on a certain day, and he had bribed the guards to be able to be a part, of the, a part of the food brigade so that he can go out so that he can make the exchange. And he went out, and he stood there by the bakery waiting for the woman to show up. And she wasn't there, so he called. And she said she'll be there momentarily. They waited a little longer. She still wasn't there. He called again. She said she'll be there soon. The guard said they have to get back. He bribed the guard again. He called again. She said she'll be there soon. And those events repeated itself a few times. And then at some point, the guard said, we have to go back. Either you go back or I shoot. And it was at that point that he realized that this woman, who he had gone out of his way for, was leading him on sadistically to give him false hope. And she never intended to show up to begin with. And Rav Lapiansky's father said, that Professor Shapiro was never the same. And he said that if she would have told me that I can't do it, I'm too afraid. If she would have told me I can't do it because I'm too lazy, I could have swallowed that. But 
leading me on falsely, having me hope for the life of my child, and then shattering and dashing my dreams at the last moment. That's a pain that destroyed him and he was never the same. And he said he used to believe in the goodness of man and it's been shattered that a woman can lead someone on like that sadistically, simply to cause him pain. Yeshio HaMelech was the last hope, was the final hope before the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed. He was the final hope. We put all of our hope in Yeshio. And if Yeshio could have accomplished cleaning out Klal Yisrael 100%, if he could have accomplished cleaning out even the, the Avedizara of those Leitzani Hadar, we could have avoided the Beis HaMikdash. And the letdown, the shattered dream of the mission of Yeshio, the murder of Yeshio, was not merely the murder of a tzaddik, but it was the very first in what would become thousands of years of shattered dreams. And that is the story of the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. That is the story of false hope and shattered dreams. When we think about being mitzapeli Yeshua, when we think about hoping for a salvation, looking forward to the Mashiach coming, looking forward to the building of the Beis HaMikdash when we look forward to that, Tzapi Yeshua is not a matter of getting out of this bad situation. It's not a matter of that this is terrible. Tzapi Yeshua is rectifying, fixing, being misakein what went wrong to begin with. What went wrong to begin with is that we placed our hope falsely. We hoped in the wrong thing. And when we say, And when we say that the Mashiach will come, we're not just hoping to get out of this, but we're actually hoping for truth as opposed to hoping for, for, for falsehood. How many of us build in our minds a false sense of reality and then based on that develop prayers of what we think will get us out? How many people hope falsely for a shidduch, for someone to be healed? The pain of the shattered dream is the pain of our nation. When we see a father burying their child, when we see a parent burying a child, we're not seeing the pain of missing a child. We're not seeing the pain of losing a child. When a mother holds a child in the hospital for the first time, she's holding nothing more than potential. She's holding nothing more than dreams. And when that dies, it's the pain, the greatest pain, of a dream unfulfilled, a shattered dream. And then when we dream and it's shattered, and we dream and it's shattered, we become sarcastic, and we become cynical, and we refuse to hope. But let's remember that there is hope. Let's remember that there is something called Tzpili Yeshua. And it's not about getting out of this. It's about fixing our standards, fixing our ideas, fixing our hopes so that we hope for what's true and for what's real. Page 182.
Samoisi kiload yahili, roshati vinosati vinutash oholi. Kinotes Zion, page 226, is the kino that talks about Zohar Asher, also Tsar Bifnim. Remember what the tormentor, the tormentor meaning Titus, perpetrated in the temple. Titus famously <clears throat> went into the Beis HaMikdosh. Titus went into the Beis HaMikdosh and did some unmentionable Averis in the holiest place on earth, in Hashem's house. He walked in in a brazen fashion. He challenged Hashem. He walked in and he said, I'm a monarch, I'm a king, and you're a king. Let's do battle with each other. The chutzpah displayed by Titus is unprecedented, but it's not just about the words that he said, it's the place that he said it in. It was in the Rabbeinu Shlelem's house, in the Beis HaMikdash. Titus went in and proclaimed the greatest apikarsus, the greatest kfirah possible. Titus walked in and did averis in the Kaidish Kodshim, immoral averis, avaydazara, he rolled out Sifrei Torah to do the Averis on them. And then he finally took a sword and took a stab at the Parochas. And Hashem made a nace and blood began to flow from the Parochas. And Titus proclaimed, I finally did it. I finally murdered the God of Klai Yisrael. And Hashem was silent. Hashem did not respond. And you have to wonder... How is it that Hashem doesn't respond? How is it that Hashem keeps quiet? 
to a display of chutzpah, to a display of embarrassment, to a display like that in the Beis HaMikdash, in the Kodesh Kachim. How does Hashem keep quiet? How does Hashem keep quiet is a question that's been asked through the generations. From one tragedy to the next tragedy, people have asked, how does Hashem keep quiet? In our minds, most prominently is during the Holocaust, during and after the Holocaust. People who went through it have asked, how could he have kept quiet? And we're not here to discuss the question that those people asked because they went through things that we can never fathom. We're only here to try to understand the silence of Hashem and what it means. This question of how could Hashem have kept quiet, where were you, Hashem? Where were you, Hashem, is actually the question of Yirmiyo and Daniel. They were the first ones to ask the question. We're told that Anshei Knesses Hagdayla were called the Anshei Knesses Hagdayla because they were Machzir Atara Liyoshno. They returned the crown of Hashem to its glory. In what way did they do that? We say in the Shemayna Esrei, Hokeil Hagodol, Hagibar Vahanoira. Gibar is mighty, Noira is awesome, powerful. Gibar and Noira. Tremendous praises, tremendous descriptions, Kaviyachal of Hashem. And that was the way we dive into Hashem, Gibar and Noira. And it was at that time that Hashem was quiet, that Yirmiyo and Daniel, the prophets, cried out, Aye Noira Oisav, where is your Noira? Aye Gvura Oisav, where is your Gvura? You have oppressors coming into the Beis HaMikdash and talking the way they do, and doing what they do, and you're silent? Where's your Gvura? You have Goyim who are being mishabed, who are enslaving your own children in your own land. Where's your Noira? This is not the question of an Apikiris. This is the question of a Navi. And so from that time, they, they erased Gibar and Noira from the davening. And we stopped saying Gibra and Noira because Aye Noira Isav and Aye Gvura Where is it? And then after the Khorban, the Anshe Knesset Hagdaila came. And they said famously, Hain Hain Noira Isav. Hain Hain Gvura Isav. Your silence is your strength. Your silence is your Gvura. Your silence is your Noira. What does it mean? Where is your Neira? And what does it mean? This is your Neira. We're told, Chazal tell us, that Tzadikim, says the Medrash and Shir Hashirim, Tzadikim ha'emidoli b'churbono yoyser mi b'binyono. Yerushalayim, Tzion, in its destruction, produces more or greater Tzadikim than it does in its beauty. Tzadikim ha'amiduli yoiser b'chorbona. Greater tzadikim or more tzadikim are produced from Yerushalayim in its chorbon, in its state of destruction, yoiser mi bibinyona, even more than in its, in its built up proper place. It's something which boggles the mind that there could be any sort of maila, there could be any sort of benefit, there could be anything better about our situation when Yerushalayim is bechorbana, more than bebenyana, that it's maimed, that it establishes tzaddikim that are even greater or more tzaddikim. And the Rosh Hashiva of Huttner describes to us a simple but powerful marshal. 
where there's a group of Talmidim, of students learning from their Rebbe. And they're there to learn from their Rebbe. And they are learning Torah from their Rebbe. And their Rebbe is talking to them and relating to them. And while the Rebbe is talking, he's relating to them. And they're hearing the Rebbe. But when the Rebbe is quiet, obviously, he is no longer talking to them. He's not relating to them anymore. And so from that time, it's mafsik. The relationship between the Rebbe and the Talmud ceases for a moment until the Rebbe begins to talk again. But imagine, says the Rishiva, that there would be a Talmud that can not only perceive and understand the words of the Rebbe, but he can also understand the silence of the Rebbe. He's even able to understand the thoughts of the Rebbe when he's quiet. He's able to understand the desire of the Rebbe when he's silent. For that Talmud, when the Rebbe goes from speaking to being silent, he doesn't take a step down, he takes a step up. Because not only is he understanding what the Rebbe is relating to him, but he's even understanding the innermost thoughts of the Rebbe, that the Rebbe relates to himself privately, the most intimate thoughts. And we know that that's true in any relationship. A relationship between a husband and a wife that is purely based on the words that one speaks to the other is shallow and superficial at best and bound for disaster at worst. A relationship between a husband and a wife is not about understanding what he or she says, but it's understanding what he or she doesn't say. It's understanding what they're not saying. It's understanding what they're thinking. It's understanding what they can't say. It's understanding sometimes what can't be expressed in words. The Rabbeinu Shalom, during the time of the Binyan Beis HaMikdash, expresses himself to us in an open, glorious, profound, joyous way where things are clear. There's nevuah, there's an ur urim v'tumim, there's direction, there's clarity. But tzaddikim ha'amidali b'chorbona yoyser mi bebinyana. And why is that? Because once the clarity ceases, once the Rabbeinu Shalom goes silent, kaviyachal, at that point, it's about us having to take on a level of a relationship where we're not just based on what the Rabbi Shalom says, but we're based on what the Rabbi Shalom does not say. We're based on the Rabbi Shalom's shtika, understanding the innermost, most intimate thoughts of the Rabbi Shalom, perceiving his desires, kiviyachal, what he wants, what's by him. And when we take that leap, when we take that step, we're not just taking a step down from the openness of the Shekhinah to the Hester of the Shekhinah, but we're taking a step up from a level of relationship which is sort of superficial, which we can only understand what's being told, to a level of relationship which is deeper and more profound, which we understand what's not being said. It's an even more profound relationship. We stand here on Tisha B'av, and we stand, we sit here on Tisha B'av, and cry tears in silence. Where is the Shekhinah? We can't even put on talis and tefillin in the morning. We're so distant, we're so far. The pain is so sharp of the distance. We, we yearn to hear His voice, to hear the Rabbeinu Shalom talk again, to tell us something, to give us a glimmer. Your silence is deafening throughout tsaris and crusades and holocausts and inquisitions and personal tsaris and pains and tragedies. We just want to hear a word from Hashem. But on Tisha B'av we're told, 
there's a deeper relationship that goes on in Tisha B'Av. It is more distant, but it's also deeper. Today is a day where we sit in silence and we try to perceive the innermost bakoshes of the Rabbi Nishalayim, the Ratzayin of Hashem Kiviyachal, where we relate to Him in an intimate way, with an intimate relationship, where we're able to perceive His silence, not just His words. Tzadikim ha'amidali b'churbana yaisar mi b'binyana. Titus walked into a base Amigdash. He defiled the Beis Amigdash in an unprecedented fashion, and Hashem was quiet. And while that qu- silence is painful, Shualim Hilchuvay, foxes trample all over the Mokim Amigdash that a few hours earlier, a few hours earlier, if the Godla Hadar walked into the Kaidish Kachim, he would have died. Only the Kayin Godla and Yim Kippur can walk in there. That's how holy it was. And now foxes are trampling on it. The silence is painful. But there's also a beauty to the silence. Because when the Rabbi Nishleilam was shaysek, when he was quiet to Titus, it was the first time he revealed himself to us with this new depth of relationship where we need to perceive him not just based on what he says, but in the deeper way, based on what he wants. This is a time of Tisha B'av where our identity connects and is bound to Hashem in that unbreakable bond of Yisrael v'ayraisa v'kudsha b'richu chadhu. That unbreakable bond of being able to perceive what he's not saying. And when we're able to perceive what the Rabbi Nishlam is not saying, there is no mountain or ocean that stands in our way. Because it's not about being able to hear the words, but it's about perceiving the silence. The chizuk that we get, the courage that we receive, the encouragement that we receive from the shtika, from the silence, from the shtika of the Rabbi Nishalalim, when the Rabbi Nishalalim was quiet through Tsaris, is not that the Rabbi Nishalalim wasn't there, it's that the Rabbi Nishalalim was there. And just like a wife or a husband that's being quiet, that we need to listen even more sharply to be able to perceive what we need, we deepen our relationship. And when we daven for the Geula, we don't daven for Hashem to talk once again. But we daven that us understanding His silence blossoms into a relationship in which not only does he relate to us in silence, but that depth of relationship is expressed in an open way. And that's what we call Matzmiach Yeshua. Hazairim Bedima. When we plant seeds today, we plant seeds of a deeper relationship. And Berino Yiktsayru, Lishuas Chakivisi Hashem with the Matzmiach Yeshua, with the sprouting of Yeshua, the Yeshua that will come from an ever greater, an ever deeper, an ever more profound relationship that we have with Hashem. And it's that Giloy Shechina, which is on a whole different level that we daven for today. Bimheir Biyomenu Amen. I'm not going to
listening on the Nachum Siegel Network. We will now continue with the explanation of Kinos. Call upon Shlomo Schwartz, who will dedicate his words in memory of his late father, Rav David Schwartz Zal. Next kenna that we're going to say is kenna 21. It begins with the words Arze Halvanon. It's on page uh, 248 in the art scroll kenas. The author of this kenna is unknown. We don't exactly know when it was written. But its content is that it describes in excruciating detail the martyrdom of 10 of the greatest sages and leaders that we had in the Mishnahic era. And in the Kinnah, it presents their deaths as happening one after the, after the other, but in truth, they occurred over many years during this era. But despite minor differences in the lead-up to each murder, they were all justified with the same cruel logic, that Jews deserve to die for following Jewish traditions, for teaching Torah, and for the simple crime of being Jewish. This kinna describes in excruciating detail the, the horrible ways in which the rabbis were executed and the humiliations that were visited on them during, during their murder. Rabbi Shmuel, who was known to be very handsome, had the skin of his face flayed off and it was preserved for the viewing pleasure of the Romans. Um, Reb Chutzpah, whose oratorical power was legendary and who was famous for never using his mouth to speak anything other than Torah, he had his holy tongue torn out, thrown into the street, and fed to pigs. But 
what's more striking than the than in this kinna than the cruelty displayed by the Romans is the moral courage and the bravery displayed by the rabbis as they died. Rabbi Kiva, the Gemara tells us, as he was having his skin pulled off with iron combs, his students saw him smiling. And they asked him, Rebbe, even now you're smiling? And he explained to them that his entire life he had wondered about the line in Kriyashma where we say, Bechol nafshcha, that we will serve God with our entire soul. And he always wondered, he said, my whole life I've been saying Shema. And I always wondered, am I ever going to get the chance to serve God with my entire soul? And now the time has come, I'm getting the opportunity. Shouldn't I smile for what I've been anticipating and, and waiting for my whole life? Rabbi Huda ben Bava was pursued by the Romans for the crime of wanting to ch continue the chain of smicha, of rabbinical ordainment. The Romans had said it was illegal to continue the chain of smicha, and Rabbi Huda ben Bava understood that he had to. So he took his students to a small secluded area in the mountains to give them smicha. The Romans found out about it, and they, they pursued Rabbi Huda ben Bava, and he set himself up on a narrow pass in the mountains and he refused to budge, and he allowed his students to escape while he himself was pierced with 300 spears from the Romans. Rabbi Hanini ben Shradion was being burnt at the stake, and the Romans had, the Romans had packed his, his chest with wool so that he would not burn quickly. And his students told him, Rebbe, open up your mouth, inhale the fire, die quickly, end the suffering. And Rabbi Hanini said, no. It's, it's usher for a Jew to hasten his own death. He said, let the one who gave me my soul take it as he sees fit. These giants who we lost, these broad-shouldered leaders, the way they died, they died with, with halacha in their hearts. They died with Tyra in their minds. And they died with Kavayt Shemayim. That was, what they, that, was their, that was their mission as they passed out of this, out of, out of this world. They were so glowing with Kedusha that one of the executioners was inspired to jump in the flames after Rebchanid bin Tradin was burnt. By describing the ways in which these martyrs faced their death, we see what kind of caliber of people they were, and it gives us an insight into how deeply we need to mourn their passage, the passage of such people. And we need to mourn the, the loss of models of greatness that we could follow. And this is another major aspect of the Churban. That, that we need to mourn on Tishabav, and that we bring to the forefront in this kenna. The Gemara in Zavachim describes the Beis Amigdash as Noisheba the beauty of the universe. Why was this singled out as the defining characteristic of the Beis Amigdash? Rav Cook explains that one of the major aspects of the Beis Amigdash, one of the major functions that it served, was in its beauty and its splendor, it had an unbelievable ability to stir people's imaginations and to, to stir their sense of beauty. And it would present them a physical image, the physical splendor of the Beis Amigdash. The, the things we would see there would give us a picture for how uplifted a physical life could be. And when the Beis Amigdash was destroyed, we lost this unique place where we, where we could go and see an example of the heights that we could strive to. In this sense, the death of the Hazar Harugi Malchus are Chorban's all their own. Because we, we had images, we had people who presented an image of how, how truly elevated a life could be. 
what madregas a person could reach. And that's what, that's what the Asaruga Malchus were for Klai Yisrael. And the Romans, because they hated us, because they hated what we stood for and what we represented, they knew they needed to target our leaders and they needed to remove our leaders from us and take away the people who inspired us to live the way that we did. We often speak on Tisha B'Av how hard it is for us to mourn things that we don't understand and get into the frame of mind for, for things we've never experienced. And to a certain extent, this kind of does, does fall under that category because for us, we're fortunate to live in a place where the idea of lawless murder of Jews is Bar Hashem, it's a foreign concept for us. But if we concentrate, we think a little deeper, we can see the traces of Asar Harugim Malchus in our day-to-day life, not in the murder of our leaders, but in a slow death in the concept of leadership itself. For the past half century, a century in, in our society, in the larger society, we've seen a steady erosion of the faith that we had in leadership and government to the point now where there's such an atmosphere of paranoia and mistrust that people feel unmoored and people feel betrayed and unsafe in their own country. And more particularly for our community where we're supposed to have a concept of Kavayd Rabbanim and holding Hiram Amirim in, in high regard, we've gone pretty far from that ideal as well. We've somewhat forgotten how we're supposed to relate to our leaders, the trust we're supposed to have, the respect. But the truth is that if we, if we try, we can go a little bit deeper. Even though for us, perhaps, murder of our leaders is a foreign concept, it's not that long ago that it was a fact of, of daily life. And we know the pain of losing a gadol. We know what it's like when a loyaleno, a gadol, passes away. Even at an advanced age, we feel utterly bereft. This was the person we turned to for guidance, for leadership, for encouragement, for inspiration, and now they're gone. And we feel cold and alone, and we feel rudderless in the world. Can we try to imagine the pain of the last dar, whose need for inspiration and encouragement we can't even begin to imagine? And their leaders, they were forced to watch them cruelly broken on the wheel of anti-Semitism. So many rebbes, rabbanim, community leaders were wiped out by the Nazis. And the communities that they were a part of were forced to live on in their absence. I just want to talk about one, one Jew, one leader, one of these leaders who was taken from us, who inspired countless, uh, countless others. And in his death, he showed a moral defiance that earns him a place in the modern pantheon of Asara Haruge Malchus. It was Rav Shleimer he was the Radzina Rebbe during the time of the Holocaust. He was one of the last sons of the house of Ishbitz and Radzin. For me, on a personal note, it's, Ishbitz and Radzin were, were a big part of my family, of my father. He was studied, those were some of his most treasured svarim, some of his most cherished tyra was the tyra he learned from the svarim of, of this Hasidus. For those who don't know, Ishbitz and Radzin was a Polish Hasidus, and they, they produced some of the most fascinating personalities and some of the most challenging and sophisticated Torah of the Hasidish movement. Uh, the Hasidus started in 1839 when Rabbi Mordechai Yosef Leiner left Kotsk and began his own Rebisteva. 
During the time of his son, the Hasidus grew, and later on his grandson, Rabbi Gershon Hainach, took over. He was known as the Balatchelis. He became famous for his search that spanned the globe for the authentic Tchelis, the, the enigmatic blue ink that's mentioned in the Torah that, that we use for dyeing our tzitzis. Rabbi Shlomo Shmuel was the grandson of Rabbi Gershon Hainich. And at the age of 20, in 1929, he became Rebbe. He had to be convinced and pressured. He didn't want to be the Rebbe, but he became the Rebbe. He was a very active Rebbe. He was always traveling and going and being, being among the people in Poland. He started a network of yeshivas that, by the time the war came, had 300 students in a lot of different branches all over Poland. And he... He was, a, he, was a, he was a treasured community leader. This was a, this was a very special Hasidus, and, and he, was, he was their leader. In 1939, he had the opportunity to escape to Warsaw, where he would have been, had been safer and had routes, possible other routes to escape to, to America or to Israel. He chose to stay behind with his Hasidim. And during the war years, he ended up in a place called Valdova, which was a small ghetto in the shadow of Sobibar. And during, the time in his ghetto, uh, during his time in the ghetto, he worked, he worked tirelessly to help other Jews. He was always busy with helping other Yidin and inspiring other Yidin. I want to read an account from Matl Reichman, who was a survivor who was with the Rebbe in Valdova. In 1940, people came to Valdova, saying that in Sabibor Forest lay hundreds of dead Jews, shot and frozen. The Rav then organized, along with city activists, wagons to bring the dead martyrs to the cemetery. These deceased were partly captives and partly Jews from the surrounding towns, whom the Germans brought back from work in Germany, exhausted and looking like skeletons. They took them into the forest and shot them. A very small number were able to run away from under a hail of bullets, and some came to Valdova alive. It took a month to bury these holy martyrs. I, who was and still am a Radziner Chassid, was included in the burial process of these Mesei Mitzvah. We dug ditches and buried them together. The Rebbe himself worked along with us until every single one of the bodies were buried according to Jewish law. In, Re in Matl Reichman's account, he writes of the extent that the Rebbe went to to help people, how he gave his coat to another Yid in the dead of winter, how he worked to set up mills so that people could grind flour to have food to eat. And he also shared messages of inspiration, some of, which, which some of those messages which, which have somehow miraculously survived till now. And I'm going to read some of the messages that the Radzina Rebbe said to the downtrodden Jews in the Valdova ghetto. Do you know what is the greatest test for the Jew in the ghetto? Not to lose the image of God, to remain a human being. A time has come for which they did not prepare us. There isn't even such a curse in the Teichacha. So we have to do everything to conquer the fear. The Nazis are Amalek and their ways are to confuse the senses and drive you into a state of hopelessness, so that you should think that everything is lost and that there is no hope. Therefore, we have to tell ourselves, either companionship or death. It is difficult to fight the devil alone, but with the strength of a friend, you can conquer him. Not to give in, not to lose the spark of godliness in the person, not to sink in the mud of despair, and never to lower your human dignity. Another one of his messages the intent is for man to refuse to conceive of himself as void and corrupt. This merely reflects the actions of the Nazi. Man must instead feel that he is a Jew, a chassid, and a servant of God. The severe suffering we face, aside from its own evil existence, is further compounded by a state of depression, 
resulting in insensitivity to one's own eminent stature. Thus, we must be strong even in times of suffering, much as a prince would be in captiv captivity. Though he may be beaten, nevertheless, he is a prince, and all the beatings in the world cannot change him. In addition to the, to the help and the inspiration that the Rebbe provided, he was known for encouraging active resistance to the Nazis and to the Judenrat. And if he would urge people to take up arms, to escape, to break out into the forest. At one point, at one point during the war, the Rebbe ar personally arranged and laid the plans for an armed revolt where Hasidim set fire to a German barracks. They seized guns and began shooting at the Nazis. During this revolt, hundreds of Yidid were able to escape from the ghetto out into the forest. But the Gestapo soon realized the oppositional atmosphere that the Rebbe was creating, and they began to hunt for him. And when the Rebbe realized that the Nazis were on his tracks, he declared a three-day fast, and he took the talus with the blue strings of his saintly grandfather. He wrapped himself in the talus, and he went to the base manager, and he started to daven. On the third day of his fast, the Nazis broke into the base medrash and they grabbed him and they took him to the cemetery to shoot him. All along the way he was arguing with them, fighting with them, struggling with them. They had to drag him and shove him and push him. When they got into the cemetery, they, one Nazi shoved the Rebbe one last time against the fence. And the Rebbe, in one last act of moral defiance, spat in the face of the Nazi. They began to beat him mercilessly. Finally, they put him, put him up against the wall to shoot him. And the Rebbe raised up his voice. There were people around, eyewitnesses. The Rebbe raised up his voice, and he cried out his final words. Yidin, tanit Jews, do not give in to the murderers. Do not give in to the murderers. And his words of inspiration were not just armed resistance and not just fighting, but the moral resistance that he spoke about in his messages. Never think of yourself as subhuman. Don't think of yourself as a piece of garbage. Don't think of yourself as the way the Nazis think of you. Think of yourself as what you truly are. As he was saying Shema, the Nazis shot him. And this prince of one of the great houses of Polish Hasidus fell to the ground. And his, his innocent red blood was staining the blue strings of his grandfather's talus. Among the Jews in Valdova who witnessed this event, was a poet by the name of Yitzchak Katzenelson. He was so moved and inspired by what he saw from the Radzina Rebbe during the war years that he wrote a 1,200-line poem entitled The Song of Radzin. I want to just read the opening stanza because it connects very well to the kinna that we're soon going to say. I want to sing to you a song of a hero. No, don't laugh, brothers, and don't wonder how a Jew comes to sing the song of heroes. Songs of heroes, sure. Why are you afraid? Are hero songs only for Gentiles? Only they have the right. Gentiles. To them belongs the victory. They, only they are the heroes, because they kill in war and destroy whole worlds. So it will be hard for me to sing a hero song about a Jew, because this is a Jew who has never carried a weapon. He wears no spurs on his boots. He brandishes no sword. He has never learned how to shoot a gun. And clean are his hands, and pure is his heart, and clear, clear is his conscience. And if this Jew spills any blood, it is his, his own. So I sing you the song of a hero, but one in a very different tune. In this poem, we see the contrasting ideals, the different beliefs between Nazis and Romans 
and between the Radzina Rebbe and the Asari Harugi Malchus. They celebrate destruction, subjugation. They celebrate raw power and the lording over of that power over other people. But what do we celebrate? Who do we look at as a hero and as a martyr? Our leaders who inspired us, who help us, people who dedicate their lives to sharing Torah with others, to doing chesed with others, to lifting up other people, and people who if they ever spill blood, it is only ever their own. And only, the only function that it serves, not to, not to destroy anybody, not to subjugate anybody, but to inspire other people, to serve as an inspiration. And when we say this kin about the Asar Rugi Malchus, this is what we mourn. The loss of these towering individuals and the loss of their ability to lift us up. There's one other point that we need to say on this kinna, and that is on the, the Gemara, there's a Gemara that relates to this kinna that when Rabbi Kiva was dying, the, there was a tremendous commotion in heaven. The angels went before God and they said, Zuz Torah v'zuz Chara, is this, is this the reward that Rabbi Kiva gets for living his life as a, as, a, as a sainted sage and a leader? Is this the reward that he's earned? And the answer that Hashem gives is very puzzling. He says to the angels, stop with your complaints, stop with your questions, or I will return, I will return the world to chaos. I will return the world to tayu vavayu. And Rabbi Shalom Kluger asks the question, this is a very strange response to this question. Not only is this, this question is, is a question that everybody asks, not just in this moment, people are constantly asking, why do we suffer? Why do good people suffer? Why is there suffering at all? This is a question that bothers everybody. And this is the answer? I'm going to return the world to Tayyub Avayu? He explains with a mushal. There was a head of state who was elected to a new term, and he was preparing for his inauguration. And he wanted to, he wanted to present a good image. He wanted to look good. So he found the best tailor in his country. And he said, I want you to make a suit for my inauguration. The tailor said, I can do the job, but I need this and this amount of the finest, most expensive wool. And he ordered an inordinate amount of this very fine, expensive wool. The tailor went, he made the suit. The suit was gorgeous. The, the chief of state wore it. He wore it to the inauguration. Everybody thought he looked fantastic. Everyone was commenting on the suit. And, the, and the, the, he was very happy. But then, as time passed, something started to bother him. Something started to gnaw at him. He realized that the tailor had purchased and charged him for a very, very large amount of wool. And it just didn't make sense that he needed this much wool to make one suit. And the more he thought about it, the more he bothered him. He had been scammed by the tailor. He just it really bothered him. He's kept some of the wool for himself. He's embezzling from the government. It bothered him enough that eventually he called the tailor in. And he said, I need you to tell me what you did with the leftover wool. The tailor said, there was no leftover wool. It's all in the suit. And the chief of state said, how could that be? I don't believe it. There was so much wool. I don't believe that it's all in the suit. You must have kept them for yourself. You must be dishonest. The tailor said, I promise you, every stitch of wool is inside that suit. But he wouldn't let it go. And he kept telling the tailor, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. I'm going to prosecute you. We're going to put you on trial for, for, for stealing from me. I do not believe you. You must have stolen some of this material. Finally, the tailor says, 
Do you really want to know what happened with all the wool? You really want to see where all the wool is? You really don't believe me that I put all the wool in the suit? And the chief of state said, no, I don't believe you. So he said, okay, bring me the suit. They brought the suit in. They spread it out on a table. And the tailor took out a razor blade from his pocket and began tearing into the beautiful suit. And with each rip in the cloth that he made, folds of cloth, folds of wool began pouring out. And he kept tearing into the suit and more and more wool came out until the tattered remains of the suit lay all over the table. But all the wool was present and accounted for. And the tailor told the king, I folded and, and refolded and made layers so that the suit should drape perfectly and look beautiful. And every stitch of wool was in there. But you wanted to see where all the wool was, so I had to rip the suit apart. Hashem's answer to the malachim was not a dismissal. It was an explanation that suffering for whatever reason is an intrinsic part of the Bria. It's part of the creation. It's as basic and essential as the tides or the mountains. And for Hashem to pull out and explain suffering, He would have to destroy the entire world. That's one of the things we have to remember on Tisha B'Av. Sometimes we have a temptation to try to you know, figure out explanations for why things happen and try to come up with... Suffering is not an equation that we work out on a chalkboard. It's not a puzzle that we try to parse out into strands of cause and effect. It's a fact of the Bria, a sad fact, that we have to struggle with, we have to overcome it, and we have to, we have to wrestle with it. And today, on Tisha B'Av, is a day where we cry over it. And we cry and we cry bitter, bitter tears. And we pray to Hashem that maybe, maybe the suffering could end. Kina Arze Alvana, number 21, on page 248. Arze Alvana, Nadiri Atayra, Balis Reis, and Mimishnu Vigamara. Gibari Kayach, Amala Batayra, Dhamma, Nishnas, Nishnas, and Gura. Inu Kadesha, Heri Gimel. Yeah, makes sense. Makes more sense. Makes more sense. Amit, 
Next kind that we're going to say is kind of 25 on page 270. This is the first kind this kind was written in the memory of three noble Jewish communities in the Rhineland that were massacred during the First Crusade. The communities of Worms, Mines, and Spire. Thousands of Jews died in these massacres, which many historians refer to as the first Holocaust, and which set the European stage for later tragedies such as the Inquisition and uh, the Chmelnitsky massacres and the pogroms and the final Holocaust of the Nazis, Yemachshavam. This is the first kind that we say on Tishabov that doesn't relate directly to the Hurban of the base of Migdash. And uh, it doesn't, its inclusion in our tefillahs here on Tishabov served to remind us that the Hurban doesn't refer to two events of the destruction of two Bati Migdashim. It doesn't just refer to that. It refers, it shows us that all the tragedies and the challenges and the sorrow that each generation faces are echoes of that Hurban are part and parcel of, of the fact that our two Bata Migdash were destroyed. The first crusade began in the year 1095 when Pope Urban II was asked by the Byzantine Emperor for assistance in taking back the holy city of Jerusalem from the Muslim Turks. The Pope called upon all devout Christians to take up arms and join the crusade and to venture forth and take back Jerusalem. So a lot of the European nobles joined in later on through the instigation of a priest known as Peter the Hermit and a nobleman named Count Emicho, the, pe the peasants also joined in. And along with this marriage of militaristic endeavor and holy crusade came a wave of violence against Jews. In some of the places that the crusaders went, they wanted Jewish possessions. In other of the places that they went, they wanted Jewish baptisms. But in Worms, Mines, and Spire, the Crusaders had an insatiable desire for Jewish blood. The Kinnah kinna begins with the words, Would that my head were water and my eyes a fountain of flowing tears. With this imagery, the author of the Kinnah is showing us how his entire essence has been transformed into grief. He feels his entire being needs to be tears. His whole his whole life has become just tragedy and the expressions of sorrow. The pain is not something isolated in his life. It's not something he deals with. It's who he is. One tragedy is hard enough to deal with, but the death and the destruction of an entire community, it's a, it's a tragedy that inflates to fill every single crack and contour of our lives. This complete destruction that we're talking about in this kinna, it's brought out by the few times in the Kinnah where it mentions that both the old and the young were murdered in these massacres. The Crusaders, when they destroyed the old people, they destroyed the memories of a noble past. And when they destroyed the young people, they destroyed people's hope for the future. And this was the complete and utter destruction that the Crusaders forced on, this, on these communities. When my father used to introduce these Kinnahs, he would say that when we read about this kenna, which is an account of a massacre on German soil, we can't help but be reminded of the ultimate massacre on German soil. We see an embryonic version of the Holocaust happening in this kenna. In this kenna, we talk about mass graves. We talk about desecrated Torah scrolls. We talk about 
Entire communities wiped out. And also, borrowing a phrase from Eicha, the author of this kinna writes, Suru Karulamai Turn away from the unclean Jew. We cannot help but be reminded of how the Nazis utilized propaganda to turn the Jew into a subhuman. That in German movie theaters, they used to show a film that showed crowds of Jews leaving a synagogue, and then the image would fade into one of crowds of rats leaving the sewer. This is how the Nazis were able to turn the Jew into a subhuman. Suru tame karulama, the Jew is unclean, a Jew is dirty. But there are other, there are other resonances from this kinna to our history. Not just to the Holocaust, but to many other tragic eras as well. One idea that we see from this kinna and the story that it tells is the fundamental irrationality of anti-Semitism. All throughout our history, we see patterns of persecution against Jews that fly in the face of logic, that almost seem counterintuitive or self-destructive on the part of the persecutors. And we, what that tells us is that whatever justification or cover story that they have for torturing us, ultimately the real reason is Esav Sinaeus Yaakov, the vicious elemental hatred that they have for us. It goes all the way back to Mitzrayim. The Egyptians suddenly had this massive labor force that they had enslaved. Did they use it to expand their empire? No. They had us build cities on quicksand that disappeared in the night. As Rabbi Sonnenstein mentioned, the horrible, horrible pain of, of seeing a false hope, of false dreams, of effort gone away, the, the unique spirit-breaking power, that's what the Egyptians utilized. They had men doing women's work and women doing men's work. All this was just meant to break our spirit. The purpose of our slavery in Egypt was not to build anything, to make anything. The purpose was to turn a Jew from a prince into a slave. The Crusades, also at their core, they were a military endeavor. You have to get troops from Europe to the Middle East, and you have to seize the Holy City. Yes, there was a major religious component of it, but it was to take back the Holy City from the Muslims. To where in this equation did massacring Jews come in? Many of the Crusaders said, why should we travel all the way to the Middle East? Why should we travel to Israel to murder non-believers? We have non-believers right here in our backyard. We could kill those. The Tsarist government is another example. They destroyed themselves through their anti-Semitism. I want to read the words of a historian, Paul Johnson. He describes how the anti-Jewish laws in Russia actually contributed to the fall of the Tsars. Gradually, an enormous mass of legislation discriminating against the Jews and regulating their activities accumulated. The official Jewish regulations of Russia formed an enormous monument to human cruelty and stupidity. Enforcing these constantly changing codes was a nightmare for all concerned, except the corrupt policeman or bureaucrat. The anti-Jewish codes of Tsarist Russia thus succeeded chiefly in corrupting every element of the state service, bloating the bureaucracy and ultimately leading to the rotting of the Russian state. In attempting to solve the Jewish problem, the ruling class ended up solving the Tsarist problem. And then we come to the Nazis, who before one of the most ambitious military campaigns in history, that would require all the talents of everyone in their country, in the face of all reason, expelled countless scientists, engineers, professors, skilled craftsmen, all of whom could have, committed, all of whom could have contributed immeasurably to the war effort. During the war, 
when they were fighting on two fronts and on three continents, the Nazis diverted so much time, effort, energy, resources, and planning to the mechanized genocide of six million people. Wasn't Hitler's goal a thousand-year Reich? Shouldn't winning the war at any cost have been the ultimate priority? Yet soldiers and supplies and trains, countless hours of planning and effort, all of this went towards the final solution. Again, I want to read from the historian just about the trains alone, what was going on. Without the railways, the Holocaust would not have been possible. The railways made prodigious efforts to get the Jews exactly where the SS wanted them. These trains carrying Jews were given priority over everything else. When a ban on all other uses of railways was imposed in July of 1942, during the 266th Division Offensive in Russia, the SS still ran a daily train carrying 5,000 Jews to Treblinka and a twice-weekly train of 5,000 Jews to Belzec. Even at the height of the Stalingrad panic, Himmler wrote to the transport minister, if I am to wind up things quickly, I must have more trains for transport. Help me get more trains. The minister obliged him. Study of the train factor indicates, perhaps better than anything else, the primacy of his Jewish policy in Hitler's overall scheme and the extent to which ordinary Germans helped him push it to its conclusion. And we also consider that so many of the people who the Nazis put in captivity and killed, and this is, is, a, is a bitter thing to think about, they were German patriots. A lot, of the, a lot of the Jews that they killed had fought in World War I for Germany. They loved Germany. They identified with Germany. And they were taken by this country that they loved and identified so much, and they were, and they were murdered. And that brings us to the next important theme in this kinna. And that is the idea of the illusion of comfort and exile. In the Sefer Seder Adairis, Rabbi Yechiel Halpern, he cites the words of the Sma regarding the community of worms. The community of worms had, was a very ancient community. It started in the aftermath of the destruction of the first base of Migdash. And when the Jews returned to Yerushalayim, they sent a message to the people in worms. They said, come back to Yerushalayim. But over the years, people in worms had become successful. They had built a community. They were comfortable. And they said, you stay in the big Yerushalayim, and we'll stay here in your little Yerushalayim. They had fallen into complacency and comfort. And again, to echo something that Rabbi Sonnenstein said, we're not, it's not our job to stand here in our comfortable vantage point in history and pick winners and losers and say who did the right thing and who did the wrong thing. Every generation, every, peop every, every community that lives in exile has to struggle with something. And... Every, in our generation also, we, we, could, we could relate to what they felt there in Worms when they felt complacent, when they felt comfortable. And it's a struggle of remaining conscious that you're even in exile. Everything seems okay, things are good, we're comfortable, and we get blinded and we forget we're in exile. We're not where we're supposed to be. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Things are, are, are not ideal. They're not, they're not at all perfect. As a mushal, we could think of a wealthy man, a high-powered investor, who had everything in life. He had success, he had wealth, he had a beautiful family, a beautiful high-rise apartment, big car. But unfortunately, he gave into temptation and he made some crooked deals. And he got caught, and he ended up in prison. And his first day in prison, uh, another a kindly inmate took him aside and said, I know you're a big shot on the outside, but in here, it doesn't mean anything. We don't care, you're from Wall Street, it doesn't matter to us. In here, the only currency is cigarettes. That's the only thing that'll get you anywhere. So this guy, he's a businessman, he has, starts figuring out, how can I get some cigarettes? 
So he starts building up a network of people who will do him favors. One day he steals some dessert from the kitchen and gives it to one guy. Another guy, he picks up his mail for him. And slowly but surely, he builds up a circle of influence. And he arranges things, and he handles, he wheels and deals. Until he finally, one day, after months of work, he arranges that a carton of cigarettes should be delivered to him in the prison. It's going to be delivered to him in the laundry of the prison. The night before the cigarettes are supposed to come, this guy cannot sleep. He's so excited, waiting for what's going to happen tomorrow. The next day he gets up, and he goes to the laundry. And just as arranged, inside a, a hamper full of prison uniforms, he opens it up, and sitting there is his carton of cigarettes. And for one moment, this man is elated. He feels so happy, and he says to himself, I'm rich again. I'm rich. I'm a rich man. But then the next moment, he looks around, and he sees he's not in his apartment. He's in prison. He's not surrounded by his board of directors and his rich friends in the country club. He's surrounded by murderers and thieves. And he's not looking at a multi-million dollar bank account. He's looking at a carton of cigarettes. When we're sitting in Gullus and we think we have something good going, and we think we're comfortable, and we have, we've achieved success, and everything's going great, we have to remember that's cigarettes. We're still in prison. The, the things that we have, the things that we pride ourselves on, and that we you know, tell ourselves, to give ourselves false confidence, those are all illusions. We're still missing the real thing. And one of the biggest tragedies that arises from this false sense of confidence, from this false feeling of comfort in exile, is assimilation. We're not, again, we're not here to talk about things that other generations did wrong. We all face challenges. We're here to, to cry and to feel the bitter tests that people in other generations faced. There was a British writer named Israel Zangwill. And he said, the Jews are a frightened people. 2,000 years of Christian love has shattered their nerves. So on the surface level in this line, there's a bitter irony that the Western world for centuries has given lip service to the notion, Christian ideals of kindness and love and charity, all the while massacring Jews. But there's a second layer of the fact that we keep falling for it, that throughout the years, whenever there seems to be some opening where they're, oh, they're accepting us, they like us, this time it'll be different, this time we'll be comfortable. This time we'll, they'll really let us be a part of, the, part of the club. And every single time history has shown us it's not true. And we, and we find that out in the harshest possible ways. But there's another, a third layer here. Who was the person who said this line, who seemed to have such a keen grasp of how utterly futile it is to hope for assimilation? Who was Israel Zangwill? Israel Zangwill was, he lived in the 1800s. He was a humanitarian. He fought for women's suffrage, for oppressed minorities. And most of all, he fought for the rights of Jews to have a homeland. He was one of the original Zionists. He was one of Herzl's earliest allies. And at a time when the land of Israel was, for the most part, a barren desert, Israel Zangwill popularized the expression, a land without people for a people without a land. But he was also the one who popularized another famous phrase, the melting pot. It was the title of a play he wrote in 1915 about America which includes the following line. America is God's crucible, the great melting pot, where all the races of Europe are melting and reforming. Germans and Frenchmen, Irishmen and Englishmen, Jews and Russians, into the crucible with you all. God is making the American. And what was the story of this play? It was about a Russian Jew named David who survived the Kishinev pogroms of 1903, where Jews were, were murdered and tortured en masse. 
And he moves to America, and he writes a whole symphony about how in America everyone can become just an American and forget their ethnicity. And he meets a Russian Christian woman, and he wants to marry her. He goes to meet her father, and he finds out that her father is the Russian lieutenant who orchestrated the Kishinev massacre. Does David run away? Does David turn aside? No. In the spirit of assimilation, in the new spirit of America, that ethnicity will disappear, all sins can be forgiven, and David marries the daughter of this Russian murderer. This was Israel Zangwill's fantasy of assimilation. And this is a fantasy that he succumbed to. Eventually, he intermarried, and he gave up Zionism. He became what was called a territorialist. He said, Jews don't have to go to Israel. We could go anywhere. We could go to Africa, South America. We don't have any connection with Israel. The point is just, let's just have a place where we could build our own government. We could be like all other people. We could have our country. And eventually, we'll disappear into this brotherhood of man, of no ethnicity, of no nationality, no religion. That was his dream. Life imitated art for Israel Zangwill. Like we said, he, he intermarried and abandoned the, the Zionist dream. He died in 1926, and he didn't live long enough to see his utopia, his fantasy of assimilation, disappear in the flames of the Holocaust. And when we look at somebody like Israel Zangwill, it's very easy for us to look at him as misguided and deluded. But every single generation that finds comfort in ex exile or dreams of assimilation is falling prey to the same delusion that he suffered from. And when times are easy, when, when times are hard for us to be a, to, it's when it's hard to be a Jew, then we fantasize about never, not being a Jew anymore. But when it's easy for us to be a Jew, we forget how to be Jewish. We forget what it means to be Jewish. And the bitter lessons that we always learn, whether it's the fantasies or the forgetfulness, that is the story of this kinna, and that is part and parcel of the entire sad story that we say today on Tisha B'Av. Me, Tain Roshi Mayim on page 270. Me, Tain Roshi Mayim,
The next kind of that we're going to say is 31. It's on uh, it's on page 304 in the Art Scroll Kenneth. In this kinna, we contrast the, the great joy we felt at exalted times in our history with the degradation, the depths of degradation that we reached in the bad times of our history, in the times of suffering, in the times of Chorben. And each, it, specifically, it contrasts the great joy we felt when we left Mitzrayim, accompanied by miracles and the open providence of God, and the great depression and abject despondency we felt when we left Yerushalayim with our glory in tatters, our city destroyed, and all of our joy taken away from us. And each of the stanzas in this kinna brings another example of, of our heights and our depths. I want to say over one thought that my father said on this kinna. One of the comparisons, two of the different times that we bring up, one of them is Kriyas Yamsuf, and one of them is Al-Nares Bavel, the, the call to mourning by the rivers of Babylon. And the Midrashim tell us, what does that refer to? It refers to when we, when Klal Yisrael was leaving Eretz Yisrael to go into Bavel for exile, and the captors, the Babylonian captors, asked the Levium to sing and play the music of the Beis HaMikdash with the instruments of the Beis HaMikdash. And the Levium refused. They hung their harps on a tree and they cut off their own thumbs so they wouldn't be able to sing or play instruments. And they said, How can we sing the song of the Beis Amigdash, the song of Hashem, on this foreign soil? So what, what's, what is the connection? There's a, there, there is a connection between these two moments by these two bodies of water. Morale tells us that, that Kriyas Yamsuf was a was a recreation of, of uh, the creation of the world. Just as by the creation of the world, Hashem first created a world covered in water, 
and then it was Vayikavu Amayim Vaseirah Hayabasha. The water was gathered into bodies of water, oceans and rivers and lakes, and dry land appeared. And as the Chazal tells us, the dry land that appeared was meant as a habitat for humanity. It was meant, to, it meant a place where, you, where humans could live, where people could survive. The same thing was happening by Kriyas Yamsuf. Hashem was creating a dry land, a space among water, for a new breed of human being, a new, a new type of person to live. Am Yisrael. And the Gemara tells us that Hashem made a, a Kalvachimer. He said, if I, if I move the water aside for one human being, how much more so for an entire nation? And what was the purpose of this nation that, that walked through the sea and later on accepted the Torah and, and became Klal Yisrael? Amzu Yitzartali, Tihilasi Yisaperu. Their job is to is to sing my praises. That's the purpose of Klal Yisrael. So the Levim, when, when they saw the river, when they saw the river in Ahar Paras, when they, it reminded them of a higher moment, of a better moment, of a more elevated moment, of the moment of Kriyas Yamsuf. And being reminded of their, of their high point of Kriyas Yamsuf, when, when the Jewish nation was, such, was at such an elevated point, it made them realize how far they had fallen and made them realize what they had once been and where they were now. And it gave them the strength to say, no, we refuse to degrade ourselves. We're not going to sing this song for you. We're not going to sing the song, the special song that we sing for Hashem. We're not going to sing it for you, our captors. There's a limit to how much you could degrade us. And there's an important point here, and that's part of the point of this kinna, is that to fully understand a bad situation, we need to remember and try to get an understanding of, of what the good situation was. What, what were things like when they, were, when they were going well, when they were complete? As a, by way of a, of a mushal, if a man had, a, had a, a vase that was both a, a pricelessly expensive item made out of precious material and also a family heirloom, so it's a, a vase fraught with both monetary value and sentimental value, and in a moment of carelessness, he would drop this vase out the window. It would fall to the sidewalk below and shatter into a million pieces. The man rushes to the window and he stares out the window at his vase and he sees the shards shattered on the sidewalk and the grief that overcomes him is so strong that he has to fight the urge to throw himself out the window after the vase. Meanwhile, another man walks by on the sidewalk and he sees bags of trash, a cardboard box, and a pile of shattered glass. He walks on. He has no idea of what this sh pile of shards of glass represents, what unity it once was, and the tremendous pain that, that we feel now that it's broken. That all, th this is our, our mandate on Tishabov. All year long, we're like the man who's walking by on the sidewalk. We don't know what, what we see around us. We're, we're living inside a world of disunity, a world of shards, and we have no idea of what it once was, of what it used to be. Tisha B'Av is the one day of the year where we try our best to have the perspective of the man staring down from the window. And that's what we think about when we read this kenna, when he t it talks about our highest moments and the pinnacles that the Jewish nation once reached. It helps us to feel the sorrow when we look around and we see how far things are from that ideal. 
Like I said before, we, we talk about we talk about not knowing what the Beis Hamikdash was, not understanding the value of Karbanas. But we can mourn. The Churban is not is not merely about that. The Churban is about the loss of unity that we have, the, the 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 flaw in our reality that has not healed for a thousand years that started from the Churban, that things are not right, things are not the way they're supposed to be, and if we think about the Churban in that way, we we definitely can feel it because. Nobody needs to think too hard to, to come up with something in his life or something for the community that isn't the way it's supposed to be. That's far, far, far removed from, from the ideal or from a feeling of shlemus. And on a personal note, I'll say that for me and my family, we lost my father this year. And I know that now we know what it's like to have something, to have something that, was, that was complete, that made sense, and now to be thrown into a world where that completeness is gone, and when you feel utterly shattered, and nothing makes sense, and you feel that you were kicked out of, kicked out of the world where you belong, the world where you were meant to be, and put in a place that's dark and confusing, and makes no sense, and fills you with sorrow day in and day out. That is the pain of a korban. And that's the pain of a korban that all of us can feel. For whatever it is in, in our lives or in our, our communities. And to continue on on this idea of things being incomplete, of things being broken, there's another point that we should talk about. And maybe it's something that if we think, if we think and we work on, we could hasten the gula by focusing on this. There's another contrast that isn't mentioned here in this kinnah. But that when we left Mitzrayim, we went to the desert and we recabbled the Torah, it says, There was a tremendous unity among, the, among Klal Yisrael. And Chazal tell us that the second Beis HaMikdash was destroyed and we entered into our low state because of the opposite, because of sinas chinam, hatred, disunity among Klal Yisrael. And the disunity that was, existed among Claudius Yisrael then and still does till this day reflects the discord and the disharmony that entered into the world because of the Churban. We brought through our own discord and through our own not being able to cohere, to, to, to stick together to one unit, that's what brought the Churban that shattered the world. So again, if we don't understand what it means to have a base of destroyed, we certainly understand what it means that hatred is a destructive force. That how hatred could tear apart families and congregations and communities, as certainly as wrecking balls and bulldozers could tear apart a physical structure. And as we've spoken so much about in the Kinnis, about how outsiders and other nations hate us and want to kill us, it becomes so much more painful when we consider that throughout our history, we spend so much time hating each other and killing each other. And one of the Gemaras that we, that we learn on Tisha B'av that relate to the Chorban, there's a bitter, a bitter metaphor that we find for this phenomenon. The, the Gemara tells us that when the, when the siege was laid on Jerusalem, three wealthy men pledged enough supplies, silos full of supplies, that would have fed the Jewish people who were stuck in the siege, would have fed them for seven years. 
but there was one faction who didn't want to wait out the siege. They wanted to fight the Romans. And so they burned down the silos in an incredible act of destruction. And by burning down the silos, they ushered in the terrible hunger that we read about in the Kinnis that led to Leilenu cannibalism and incredible suffering. And what better metaphor is there, what more apt metaphor is there for what we do for ourselves of Yidin destroying each other inside walls while all around them Gayim wait to pounce, to kill us and to wipe us out. Is there an antidote? We've all heard a lot of different stories and varts about Ahavas Yisrael and a lot of it just slides off us. We'll just say one more, just, we'll just hope maybe this is a story that gives us an image of, the Baal Shem Tov used to say that if you want to know how to perfect your midas, when you feel yourself being drawn in one direction, you should lean in the opposite direction, like a tightrope walker. This story maybe gives us an opposite direction to lean in. It was during, uh, in the pre-war years, Rav Meir Shapiro and uh, the Chavetz Chaim were traveling on a train from a conference of, of rabbis. And at each stop the train would make, the uh, people, the Jews of the town, would come out to, to greet the, the Rabbanim. And the Chavetz Chaim refused to get out of the train. And Ramir Shabir asked him, why, why aren't you getting out? There's all these people who are, who are here to see you. And he said, they, they're Fardimian. They think, I'm, they think I'm somebody special. They're coming to see me. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not going out. I'm nobody special. So he says, no, they're, they're, they're all here to see you. They want to see you. He says, it would, be, it, would be, it would be arrogant for me to go out and greet this crowd. So Rameer Shapiro asked the Chavetz Chaim, what's so bad about arrogance? He said, what do you mean what's so bad about arrogance? Arrogance is a, a disgusting midah. It's one of the midas that it says Hashem hates. How, how, how could I be arrogant? What's, what's the problem? Why can't you be arrogant? He said, if I'm, Chavetz Chaim said, Rameer, if I'm, if I'm arrogant, I will, I will burn in hell. It's a, it's a, it's a sinful, wicked midah. I will burn in hell if I'm arrogant. And Rameer Shapiro said to the Chavetz Chaim, he said, because you're going to burn in hell, you can't forgive these people to have the joy of seeing you. All these people came out to see you. They're so eager to see you. It would make them so happy to see you. And because you're selfish and you want to avoid the pain of burning in hell, you refuse to go out and see these people, to give them the joy. You, you deprive them of that joy because you don't want to burn in hell. The Chavetz Chaim was incredibly moved by the words of Rameer Shapiro and he went out and he, and he greeted all the Jews who had come to see him. If we can somewhat model ourselves after this ideal of Rameer Shapiro, who saw that, that for him, burning in hell was a, a, a small price to pay to make another Jew happy. If we could f keep that somewhat as our ideal, maybe we can overcome the forces of sinas chinam that we encounter in our life. I just want to conclude with one final vart. We said before, when we consider the world around us, it truly, every single day, more and more, we realize that it is Admas Nechar. We see a deterioration of society, an unraveling of values, things that were axiomatic that previous generations didn't even need to discuss were wrong and right, have now come, come into question to the point where it's almost a crime to discuss it. The more we look around, the more we realize we're on Admas Necher, and we, and, and we need to be redeemed. If we ever harbored any illusion that we have a place here in society, we've, we've been dissuaded of it. 
And today is the day where we cry out and we wait for that redemption. There's a vart, the last vart that the PSS and the Rebbe said in his Sefer of Divrei Torah that he gave to people in the Holocaust. He said it on Shabbos Chazayin. Chazayin means to look, to see. And on this theme of sight, the PSS and the Rebbe said a vart on the Pasuk in Parsha Shemais that Hashem spoke to Moshe from, from inside the, the sneh, the burning bush. He said, I know their pain. I see their pain and I know their pain. Piyasetzner explains what does it mean that there's two different midas that Hashem operates in, one of sight of pain and one of knowledge of pain. And he gives a mushal. He says if there was a father who had to bring his son in for a surgery and he had to get the money together and secure the doctors and, and bring the kid to the operation, and all of his energy and focus was, was on bringing, bringing the kid to the surgery. Yet at the same time, he wouldn't be able to stay in the room. He wouldn't be able to watch the doctors cutting into his child. Because despite everything that he knows, despite all the effort that he put in and the power of his mind, and no matter how much he knows that this is what needs to happen, the sight of his son in pain would overcome all that knowledge. And the sight of his son in pain might even cause him to rush up and take his son off the operating table. The, the sight of the pain would overcome the knowledge of what needs to be. And the Piyasetzner said that we daven and we pray to Hashem that for, for whatever it is that we need to be in Gullus, we hope that his sight of us in pain will overcome that knowledge. Today, Tishabov is a day where that we sit Shiva for Klal Yisrael. But we're not alone. We're an army of mourners. We're on the front lines, this is our time and place in history, we're on the front lines sitting in the Shiva house crying for Klal Yisrael. But behind us stretch countless battalions, thousands of years of Yidin who've done what we do, who sit on the floor. We're an army of mourners, our uniform is sackcloth and ashes, and our weapons are tears and kinnis. And we've been marching for thousands of generations, always with the same weary battle cry on our lips, let us hope and pray that this is the year that Hashem sees this tear-soaked army of bedraggled orphans that have been crying for thousands of years. And let us hope and pray that this is the year that Hashem, Hashem Himself comes to the Shiva house to be Menachemas. <laughs>